the Rural Health Voice, Episode 75, Alzheimer's. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What are the barriers for addressing dementia? Katie McDonough of the Alzheimer's Association joined me to discuss the needs of our aging population. Well, welcome, Katie. Glad to have you here today. Hi, thanks for having me. So happy to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first become interested in health issues in general? Yes. So I grew up in a family where I had a lot of adults around me and my grandparents' generation who didn't have children. So I had lots of great aunts and uncles, grandparents on both sides, um, who I spent a lot of time with growing up. And I became um, really close to them and they had a a huge impact on my life. I also watched um, uh, my parents and my aunts and uncles um, care for a lot of them in later life and unfortunately um, uh, several of them, um, ended up at some point in, in their late life with a form of dementia. Um, and so I saw firsthand in my family, um, and still see today, unfortunately, my family, um, how, uh, the disease impacts, um, both those living with it and, and the family and friends around them. And when people forget something, they often make jokes that they might be getting Alzheimer's, but what is Alzheimer's? So Alzheimer's um, is a disease that causes dementia. Now, there are many diseases that can cause dementia. Dementia um, is an umbrella term um, of uh, symptoms that have to do with changes in memory, changes in cognition, changes in personality and thinking, um, behavior. Um, But it's typically caused by a disease process going on in the brain. Um, And Alzheimer's happens to be the most common cause of dementia. It's responsible for anywhere between 60 to 80% of all cases of dementia. Um, It is actually caused by deterioration of um, our brain cells over time. um, And it is um, not reversible. Uh, So uh, once, um, once, cognitive loss has occurred, we don't have a way to reverse that. So it does progress um, throughout um, someone's life um, once once they have it. Now that can happen at different rates depending on um, the individual, um, but it is, it is not a reversible disease. Um, so it's not reversible, but is there a way to prevent it? So yeah, so, um, you know, Alzheimer's uh, is not only progressive once we start seeing um, symptoms of memory loss, but it can um, start developing in the brain upwards of 20 years prior to the onset of symptoms. Um, So what that tells us is, you know, Alzheimer's disease is um, kind of a lifespan issue, right? We're learning through the science that what is good for our heart is good for our brain. So things we've learned through the research around heart disease and cardiovascular disease, um, meaning um, healthy diet, exercise, uh, low alcohol intake, um, no smoking, things, all of those things are healthy for our hearts and we're learning are healthy for our brains and can actually help reduce your risk of developing 
Alzheimer's and other types of dementia in later life. Um, so what we really want to make sure is that folks understand that um, particularly as you're getting closer to midlife and later life, we want to really be paying attention to kind of how, what our overall health is like um, and making sure that we're um, attending to our, our heart and cardiovascular health um, in the ways that, um, you know, our doctor has been telling us probably most of our life. Right. So it's a package deal. You take care of everything. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, given that um, progressive nature of the disease prior to the onset of symptoms, memory loss happens slowly, right? It's not one day you have Alzheimer's and the next one day you don't have Alzheimer's, the next day you have it, right? The, there is a progression of change. And um, prior to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there um, is myocognitive impairment, or you may hear it called MCI. And MCI is made up of changes in our cognition. So we may start seeing some changes in memory. Maybe we're forgetting names more. Maybe we're not able to perform daily tasks as easily. We might get more flustered in situations, but those changes aren't enough to interrupt daily life. Um, but we know that all of those who develop Alzheimer's um, at some point experience the stage of myocognitive impairment but not everyone who experiences myocognitive impairment progresses into Alzheimer's disease. So we're very, very curious about this stage of myocognitive impairment um, and one, raising awareness about it, making sure um, we all know what it is and we're, we're noticing it and talking about it. But two, from a science perspective, we're interested in, in um, how treatments may be um, implemented at that stage. And what is the Alzheimer's Association? So the Alzheimer's Association is a voluntary health organization. We're a nationwide organization. Um, we have chapters throughout the entire country, including Alaska and um, Hawaii, with a home office in Chicago. And we are the world's largest advocate and the world's largest um, private uh, funder of Alzheimer's research in the entire world. So um, we uh, not only do we fund um, research, but we also convene scientists. Um, we uh, create opportunities for them to learn from one another, to share data with one another, and to really um, use uh, a, uh, a lot of the same things that they're learning from the research to replicate that in other parts of the world. Um, we're also, again, um, one of the largest advocates for um, those who are living with Alzheimer's and dementia. Over the course of the past um, decade, we've been able to increase research funding from a mere $448 million um, all the way to $3.5 billion in federal funding through the National Institutes of Health. Um, so we play a big role in advocating for those, those changes. And we're in communities all over the country doing that grassroots work to make sure that folks um, get care and support, um, care, caregiver support groups, education programs, and making sure that we're reaching new communities, particularly our rural communities where we may not have offices present. We want to make sure that we're building partnerships to make sure that those resources are getting to folks. 
You are with the Central and Western Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. What's your service area? So I actually serve as the program director for three of our chapters in the state of Virginia. Um, our Central and Western chapter, which is offices based in um, in uh, Charlottesville, but goes all the way up to um, just south of Winchester, um, all the way down to the North Carolina border, and for the most part, all the way to the West Virginia border. Um, and then on the east side, down through, um, we kind of hug the Farmville area. So it is a huge, um, huge uh, area. And I also oversee programming in our Greater Richmond chapter and um, our Southeastern Virginia chapter, which is based um, out of Norfolk. And what services do the chapters provide? So our um, chapters, one, are making sure that folks are aware that the association exists, which is no easy feat um, with, uh, when you're thinking about the entire country, um, making sure that all communities are connected. One of the things that we hate to hear, uh, we just, it, it, is, it, it is terrible to hear someone say, I wish I'd known about the Alzheimer's Association when I was a caregiver, when I was going through my journey with this disease. Um, so we, first of all, want to make sure folks know we're here. Um, we want them to know about our 24-7 helpline. Um, that is, um, I can uh, share it with you, one 800 272 3900. I'm sure you can share this in the show notes as well. Um, but this is a helpline that's available to anyone 24 seven, 365 days a year. Um, anytime they need anything from, Hey, I just want to know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia to, I need to find a physician in my local area all the way to, I need some education about the disease, or I'm in the middle of a crisis and I need help, help getting, um, getting some help. Um, so that number, um, there are folks all over the country that take those calls, and then they are connected um, very closely to the individual chapters, so we can provide follow-up um, uh, as needed for those families um, from a local perspective. And then we also provide education programs anywhere from what are the warning signs of Alzheimer's all the way to um, really skills-based programming for caregivers um, and um, our su caregiver support groups and our support groups to people living with Alzheimer's. Um, and one of the most exciting things I think that's new for us um, within the last several years is our community development work. And again, this is really solving that problem of people who don't know we exist, right? We're going into new communities, developing new relationships with partners, partnering organizations at the ground level, at the grassroots level, um, and making sure that we're bringing those services to uh, folks in their communities where they live. So how can someone get connected to the chapter that serves, serves their area? Sure. So if you are on the web um, and comfortable with that, you can go to alz.org. And as soon as you get to our main website, there will be a little box there. You can put your zip code in. Um, it'll search for you and connect you to the chapter closest to you. Um, if you want to just pick up the phone, you can always pick up the phone and call um, that helpline. Um, ask them who your local chapter is and um, get connected to them that way. Something that rural health advocates like to point out is that rural communities have a higher percentage of people who are over 65. Mm. What does that mean for taking care of those with Alzheimer's? It makes it very challenging. Um, definitely. Uh, we, um, 
we just published our um, 2022 Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures, and we publish these every year. And this is the first year that we've actually included um, stats on um, uh, dementia care workforce and um, resources in the community that are focused on dementia care. And overall, um, about 55% of primary care physicians said um, that um, they were not equipped with the number of specialists um, and experts that were needed to provide care to those living with dementia in the community. But if you contrast that um, with some of our small town and rural communities, 63% um, of primary care physicians in small towns, 71% in rural areas reported um, that that lack of resources is a challenge. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we wanna make sure that folks get connected to us first so that we can make sure we know where, um, you know, where the closest um, diagnostic center is, what resources are there, and hosting those listening sessions. So we host listening sessions with communities all over the country to hear what the specific issues are of that community, including rural communities, um, to take those back um, to our organization and then also to um, those legislators that we work with to help um, create some change even at a policy level for more access to services. But it does have a great toll um, on those, particularly in rural areas, because there may not be um, the adult day center um, that's close, or there may not be a lot of choices in, in home health care, um, or even um, nursing facilities or assisted living facilities. Uh, so we, we know that a lot of those caregivers are caring for their loved ones in the home, likely without a lot of help. Um, and so that's what we want to make sure that they know about what resources do exist that can give them some relief. So if, for example, I was taking care of my mother in my own home, is there financial support for that type of care? So for the for most Americans, um, long-term care, anything that cares for someone um, outside of a health-related need, so then that typically means some type of hospitalization, right? Um, anything that's needed for long-term care, dementia care, is, is typically um, uh, comes out of um, our own pockets, right? We don't have, Medicare um, does not, which is our, you know, health um, healthcare for those 65 and older, Medicare doesn't pay for those long-term care expenses. Um, so if folks don't have those resources, we wanna make sure that they know um, about um, opportunities for um, Medicaid and other um, other uh, sources of, of support uh, for assisted living and even respite care that may be, there may be public funds and there may also be private funds that um, caregivers can take advantage of. But it is, it, it is from a financial standpoint, very, very challenging um, for caregivers uh, to, uh, to uh, handle because in many cases, um, if you are caregiving and you're still working, you have to reduce your work hours a lot. Some people have to stop working altogether. Uh, we know um, that people also um, 
have to overlook their own health needs, their own well-being, um, and that can take its toll on a caregiver too. Um, so the challenge is there are limited resources from a financial perspective, but we want to make sure that we can connect um, caregivers who need help from a financial standpoint um, to what may be available to them um, in their state. And you mentioned that part of the concern is the primary care providers don't have the access to the specialists they need in our rural communities. What types of specialists do we need for, to deal with Alzheimer's? So um, most of most people, when they begin to have memory issues, um, first uh, discuss those with their primary care physician. Um, that has been the experience even in my own family. Right now, I have loved ones who are um, challenge with cognitive impairment. And the first step we take is to talk to the primary care physician. But as you heard, you know, from what I shared, um, many primary care physicians don't feel that they have the training, nor do they feel that they have the specialty in um, diagnosing and um, managing this disease over time. So what that means is many of them um, will, if a diagnosis is actually made, um, will end up uh, referring to a specialist. And those specialists can include a neurologist, neuropsychologist, um, nurse psychiatrist. Um, and, and these are individuals who uh, may have, and um, not all of them do. Uh, some of them have different specialties as it relates to the brain. But um, many of them may have um, an expertise in how to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. Right now, we diagnose primarily by symptoms, right? So we have to wait for symptoms to occur, um, which means the disease is pretty well progressed. We have to talk to our loved one. We then have to talk to our primary care physician. Then if it is diagnosed, which often it is not in a primary care setting, um, that's when you finally make it to a specialist. Um, and oftentimes, um, if you're near or, or able to get to a large medical center, um, those diagnostic centers may have access to some of the latest technology around um, diagnosing. So, for example, um, one of, um, uh, you know, the the brain scans that we use is called a PET scan. Um, this is currently being investigated in research um, studies across the country, and a PET scan can help us actually see um, uh, the Alzheimer's uh, disease developing in the brain over time. Um, but for most people, that kind of technology is not accessible to them, um, even in small towns and um, suburban areas. Um, so most people are diagnosed with symptoms and um, you need somebody who is an expert who understands not only Alzheimer's, but other types of dementia or other things that could potentially be causing this cognitive impairment um, in order to make the most uh, accurate diagnosis and to treat the disease appropriately throughout its progression. Now, primary care providers and specialists, you know, they're, they're providing those direct services, but they're only one piece of the puzzle. What about support staff like nurses' aides and home health aides? So, yeah, what we've talked about right now is, is, um, is health care, right? But when we go to the long-term care side, right, so this is 
care for daily needs, right? And typically in the home, help with, um, you know, personal care or daily, what we call activities of daily living, right? That's, that's long-term care. And that's typically provided by um, uh, nursing aid staff, um, certified nursing assistants. And uh, what we also found in um, our recent um, facts and figures is that we have um, a significant um, need for more of these um, individuals um, who have an understanding of how to care for someone with dementia um, and um, have the skills that they need to do so. And so we found that um, the demand for direct care workers is projected to grow more than 40% while their availability is declining. And that is declining because um, it's, it's not a, um, a, a, a profession that pays um, an exorbitant amount of, of um, income. And it's also incredibly difficult work um, whether you're working in um, a facility or in um, someone's home, it's a very challenging role. Um, so the Alzheimer's Association really wants to make sure that we are driving um, growth um, in this area. We're making sure that um, those who are providing that care have access to the training that they need to provide good care, um, to make sure that um, in uh, settings where this care is being provided, that um, there are regulations that make sure um, there are enough um, of that workforce to provide that care and to con continue to try and grow and influence um, uh, making this a role that, um, you know, is... Um, you know, is the type of work that is sustainable for people to um, to uh, continue to do as their career. So there's a lot of work to be done, both at the state level and the federal level. Um, and then, of course, a lot of um, education um, in local communities to make sure that community members and then those within the profession know uh, what resources are available to them. Um, we provide all kinds of education, both from the long-term care side and the healthcare side. Um, we provide that education on a national level and he, right here in the state of Virginia, um, both virtually and in person, um, so that all of those professionals can have access um, to the education that they need to provide that quality care. When we talk about rural Americans being older on average than the general population, what isn't always obvious is that it means our healthcare providers are older as well. Is that something that you notice? Yes, and um, although I'm not very specific, specifically um, aware of those age, um, those age demographics, it certainly is true that there is less um, less infrastructure, right, in rural areas, um, which means we have to really examine some other ways that we can um, continue to provide care um, in a way that is, um, you know, accessible to those who are living in rural areas. And I think, you know, the pandemic, one of the silver linings um, of the pandemic is we have learned um, that telehealth 
um, uh, is possible and we can provide quality care through telehealth when we're really in a, in a pickle and have to do it. Um, and, you know, our hope um, at the Alzheimer's Association is that we can continue to grow those models, not revert back right, to the way that we were doing things before the pandemic, but to really grow uh, these opportunities for telehealth um, to give those who are living in rural areas or even those who are just, it's really hard to leave the house with someone who has advanced state space stage dementia and to make it easier on caregivers and those living with a diagnosis to make that ongoing care management accessible to them. Um, so there are some models that we are really um, looking at and working with that um, we hope uh, that we can um, help grow throughout the country to help provide this care from, from a distance as well. What do you see as the solution to increasing the workforce in our rural communities? So I think first we have to um, develop a larger workforce in general for dementia care. Um, so these deficits, they um, span all types of, um, of, of settings, urban, rural, um, suburban, and all those in between. Um, so although it is felt um, more in rural areas, I think um, we really need to look at health, the healthcare workforce and say, what are we doing from the very beginning, right? How are we incorporating um, dementia, cognitive impairment, and um, care management for this disease at the very start? Um, you know, most primary care physicians are not taught in medical school very much about dementia or geriatrics at all. They spend very little time um, in medical school um, focused on that, yet overwhelmingly numbers of their patients um, every day is growing are, are um, uh, 65 and older. And so we really have to start with that workforce development from the very beginning um, for nurses, for physicians, even for social workers. I think that there is some opportunity to train a broader scope of the workforce, um, not just physicians um, who can diagnose, but other types of healthcare professionals. Um, and that would make it more accessible, um, you know, uh, to those in rural areas because we're not just depending on the presence of a physician's office, but we can have other professionals there locally who may be able to provide um, that diagnosis. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I've worked in, with a lot of communities um, throughout the, the, the state of or the Commonwealth of Virginia, and one, um, one or two of my f uh, favorite um, practices um, of folks who are providing um, assistance um, with diagnosis and then also helping caregivers with care management are some models in rural areas um, that are really using non-physician professionals to help do that work. So I think it's really possible to do this. Um, it's just a matter of thinking outside the box of who can make a diagnosis, who can be trained to do this work, um, and really equipping um, those professionals um, to be able to do that. Aside from the lack of healthcare providers, are there other barriers to addressing Alzheimer's in rural communities that you may not see somewhere like Charlottesville? So I think very often, um, up until this point, 
we typically meet people on the onset of the disease process pretty late. Um, you know, once the disease process is, is um, well underway. And um, so first of all, what we want to do is make sure that folks are discussing um, amongst themselves and with their um, healthcare professionals um, what cognitive issues they're having so we can make this a part of the general conversation. But I think that um, we can't just rely on healthcare systems and long-term care systems to, uh, as the kind of forums for the discussions about this to happen. We really have to think outside the box. We have to look in communities, right? Where people turn in crisis, um, where people turn when they need help. Um, and we need to be present in those parts of the community too. So for example, some of the work that we're doing, um, we've been doing over the last few years is really increasing our faith outreach work because we, we hear from ministers, pastors, all kinds of faith leaders that when someone is in crisis, particularly with dementia, um, the church is often um, the place that they turn first, um, or they may see folks absent from that community because they're no, no longer able to attend. So we're really trying to do work with faith communities, civic leagues, other neighborhood and community organizations to really broaden the conversation and equip those pieces of our community, those members and partners in our community with their understanding of dementia, um, even their skills and knowing um, where to send someone or um, what resources are available so that they can also be partners in um, providing help to those in our community who are impacted by this disease. So, you know, we, we, we hear that term all the time. It takes a village, you know, to solve problems. And that is, that is certainly true um, of Alzheimer's and dementia. We really want to make this a full community um, uh, challenge, right? We want to come at it from all points of the community to help solve um, the, the challenge of Alzheimer's and dementia and to really support those families. So if there was someone in my community, maybe a, a neighbor or, or somebody that I knew through work that was struggling to care for a parent or a spouse with Alzheimer's, what could I do to help? So I would say the first thing um, that you could do is share with them that Alzheimer's Association 24-7 helpline. That's an easy first step. Um, and um, you can call uh, have them, you know, encourage them to call, or you can call yourself and say, hey, this is my situation. I want to learn more about this disease. I want to find out these resources. Um, what This is a particular problem that I'm noticing that this family is facing. What are some ways that we can um, connect with our local chapter to get some resources to them? Um, that is a great first step. I think learning about the disease, um, learning about... Um, you know, what those, what resources are available and being comfortable, being present, um, to have the conversation with your neighbor, you know, half the battle right now with this disease is there's still an incredibly he heavy stigma around cognitive decline. And so, uh, we're not even talking about it, right? We ignore it in our neighborhoods. We ignore it in the doctor's office. Um, and we really need to make it a part of the larger conversation if we're really going to solve those 
those problems. So um, there are a lot of different resources that are, that are available that are particular to different needs. We just want to make sure that we get folks connected to them. On your website, I saw a button for advocacy. Yes. What are you doing to engage elected officials regarding Alzheimer's? Right. So we have um, both uh, state and federal engagement teams. Um, of course, depending on the type of legislation and the jurisdiction, um, we're going to need to work with um, either or in sometimes in some cases both. Um, but again, as I mentioned at the beginning um, of, of the podcast, um, you know, we have um, worked very diligently over the course of the last decade to really um, significantly increase research funding um, through the National Institutes of Health from $448 million all the way up to that $3.5 billion, which it is today. That was all done by our advocates, by people just like you and me, people out who are listening to this podcast who decided that this was an important issue for them and um, they formed relationships with their members of Congress and their senators. Um, they did held meetings in their local communities. They came um, to Washington, D.C. and um, turned the, the Capitol Hill uh, purple for the day um, to have those conversations with, with uh, members of Congress and their staff. Um, but that's not just limited to research funding. There are, there are all types of legislation that we advocate for and support. Um, we also um, have been responsible for um, the bold um, infrastructure for Alzheimer's Act. And this was a piece of legislation that in, that infused Alzheimer's and dementia into the national public health conversation and also provided funding for um, public health um, uh, departments all across the country to, um, to infuse brain health into the work that they're doing at the state level. Um, and so we're involved in, in that, working with the Virginia Department of Health here in um, the Commonwealth. Um, and there are all kinds of legislation that impact uh, care through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, how physicians are um, educated, what resources they are available to them, how they can reimburse for di diagnosis and, and quality care. So there are all kinds of things that we're doing really to make sure that we're moving the needle um, on not only um, the science of the disease and finding that treatment, um, finding more and more um, accesses to treatment, but to really, uh, to really change what it looks like to go through a diagnostic process and, and a care management process for those who are impacted by the disease. So we want people who, you know, if, if that is, if, if, if that is your skill, if that is something you love to do, we would love to have you as an advocate for the organization. It can be anywhere from just tweeting something or responding to a text that we send all the way to meeting with your member of Congress. There's something for everyone. Absolutely. So last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? <sighs> what, what, one thing. One thing. Gosh, if I could do one thing, I think it would probably be to put a diagnostic center um, for heart and brain health in every community um, that includes socialization, well-being, prevention, and then access to resources. Um, I think that 
you know, the reason I would choose um, whole body, heart and brain health is because all of those pieces are so, of, of our bodies are so intricately connected, right? Um, you know, we're even learning now that gut health has an impact, uh, could have an impact on brain health. So um, I would want folks to have access to experts in every community, but I'd also want them to have access to one another so that they could provide support um, and um, community um, to help bring about better health um, in all communities for all people. Great. Well, thank you for joining me today, Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's Katie McDonough advocating for improved access to whole body health. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, check out the National Rural Health Association's upcoming conference. Can't justify going all the way to Albuquerque in May? Join us virtually instead. Visit ruralhealth.us for details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.